Thank you, Anne Elizabeth, for reading God's Word for us this morning. Welcome again to Christ Community. My name is Bill Gorman, and I serve as the campus pastor here, and just want to thank you for being here, for gathering with us this morning. We're so glad that you have chosen to worship with us uh, this morning. So as we prepare to look into God's Word this morning, to look at these passages that were read for us, um, I'd love to pause and just pray and ask for God's help in the midst of that. So Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you have given us your Word, um, that you have blessed us with the treasure um, that is your word. And I pray that now as we open it, as we study it together, um, that your spirit uh, would bring it to life. Um, we know that apart from your spirit's work, that this just remains dead to us. And so um, we ask that your spirit would bring it to life in, in each one of our hearts and minds uh, today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, last weekend or a couple weekends ago when um, the Superman movie, Man of Steel, came out, it set a June box office record for a June opening film. It earned over $113 million in its first weekend. It beat out Toy Story 3, I think, which I think was the previous June record holder for an opening of a film. And uh, whether it is The Dark Knight or Iron Man or Katniss Everdeen of The Hunger Games, or, uh, or Superman. We, as a culture, we love superheroes, and we love superhero stories in all their forms. And I think we love these stories, these stories of one person who, sort of against all odds, is able to, to through their extraordinary abilities, rescue the innocent, punish the guilty, establish peace, ensure justice, to triumph over tyranny. And every good story has a hero, right? One who, who overcomes, who triumphs, who manages to find a solution to the problem when all seems hopeless, when all seems lost. And I think we identify with heroes for two reasons. I mean, first of all, I think we identify with heroes because I think kind of deep down, all of us want to be a hero. All of us want to be the one who saves the day, who rescues, right? Um, children, if, if you are here, you probably have all played at some time, right? Maybe imagine that you were a doctor or a firefighter or a police officer saving someone's life, saving the day. In fact, I remember when I was growing up, um, my sisters and I used to watch this show. Maybe some of you remember. It was called Rescue 911. It was uh, with William Shatner. It was these terrible kind of dramatizations, reenactments of, of actual 911 calls. And, but we loved it as kids. We'd watch the show, and as soon as the show was over, the three of us would always we'd run outside and then we'd, we'd do our own reenactment. We would, we would play firefighter or police officer. My parents had this great um, 1983 Caprice Classic station wagon, this nine-passenger station wagon that made the ideal, you know, either police car or ambulance or fire truck. And we would, we loved to play um, that we were heroes, that we were rescuing people. So I think we identify with heroes because we want to be a hero but I also think we identify with heroes and superheroes because we all recognize that some of we need to be rescued, that we need someone to rescue us, that we were born to be rescued. You, you know, we live in a world that is, is broken and, and falling apart where so much goes wrong so often, both at a, both at a macro level and in natural disasters and in geopolitical conflicts, but, but also on a micro level, right, with, with credit card debt and, and car repairs and, and sick kids, we all experience the, the need to be rescued. And so we look to, to athletes, to, to activists, to stars, to, to politicians, to, to marketplace innovators. We look, we look for heroes, people who can bring about change, people who can bring us hope or at least distraction in the midst of the brokenness. 
And, and I think this is why oftentimes conversations about, about Democrat or Republican, uh, conservative or liberal, Android or, or Apple get so heated so quickly, right? Because, because when you challenge someone or question someone's political position or, or their mobile operating system, right, you often are not just questioning a, a position they hold, but the one that they've entrusted their hope to, their savior, their rescuer, their hero, right? So what would you want your hero to look like? I mean, I think we all have a, a concrete image in our mind of, of what a hero would look like in a given situation, right? If your house is burning down, you want the fire department to show up. If you're being robbed or assaulted, you want the police come with, with drawn guns to rescue you. If you're having a heart attack, you, you want the life support unit to come to bring you to the best heart surgeon. We know what to expect in a hero, However, what we're going to see this morning as we look at the book of Isaiah is that the hero we most desperately need is the hero we least expect. That the hero we most need is the hero we least expect. We're going to do something a little bit different. We normally just spend time in one text, but this morning we're going to look at three different texts of Scripture in the book of Isaiah. And some of you are aware that the Bible contains uh, prophecies or, or predictions about a hero that would come the hero we ultimately long for. And this morning as we look at these chapters, we're going to see that about the hero that we expect, we're going to see the hero we most need, and then the hero we indeed have. So the hero that we expect, the hero we most need, and then the hero we indeed have. But, but before we get to that, I just want to say a quick word about reading and understanding biblical prophecy. Uh, I think oftentimes when we come to the Bible and we read these sections known as, as prophecy, we, we sort of expect it to be a little bit like a, a fortune cookie, sort of clear and concise and to the point. But, but biblical prophecy isn't at all like that. Um, what the prophets saw always came with, with much more mystery than clarity. And one of my professors in seminary, I love the way he described it, he says, the promises of God cannot be reduced to mere predictions. The promises of God can't be reduced to mere prediction. He says a prediction limits the word to a particular fulfillment, whereas a promise unfolds progressively over time. A promise is like a rolling snowball in its momentum and significance. As time goes on, it continues to build. So instead of viewing every prophecy as a, as a direct prediction of Jesus, it's, it's more helpful to view, view them as promises that find their ultimate fulfillment in him. He also used the picture of a, of a mountain range, of, of, a, of prophecy is like looking out at this, as this stunning mountain range. See, when you look out at the Rockies, you focus on the peaks, right? But you don't always see the details, and you don't always see the valleys in between, and you, you can't always tell from your vantage point which peak is higher or even which one is closer. But what you are stunned at is the amazing beauty of the scene that's before you. And that's how the prophets work. They give us this amazing picture of who this promised hero to come is. Even if we don't have all the details of the exact timing of it. That's how biblical prophecy works. And Isaiah wrote down these promises 700 years before Jesus came. And he paints this beautiful picture of the hero that we long for. But keep in mind that the hero that we most need is the hero that we least expect. So, but first, let's look at the hero that we do expect. 
Um, if you have a Bible with you this morning, in Isaiah chapter 9 and Isaiah chapter 11, he paints this picture of the hero that we do want. So um, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9 if, if you have a Bible. If you grab one of the Bibles in the pew, it's found on page 573, um, Isaiah chapter 9. And as you look at these verses, notice especially verses 4 and 5. Uh, Isaiah writes, he says, For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So you see this king who comes, this hero who comes as a conquering king and he comes as a freedom fighter who will liberate everyone who is oppressed. That's what this language of, of breaking the yoke, the staff, the rod, that's what that refers to. That he's going to liberate all who are oppressed, who are abused. And then you get that quick little reference there, the day of Midian. And that little phrase, day of Midian, would have brought Isaiah's readers back, back to a time in Israel's history during the time of the judges. When Gideon, one of the judges, he was a, 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 you should go back and read his story at some point. It's found back in the book of Judges. But, but Gideon with 300 warriors, mere 300 warriors, defeats this entire encampment of Midianite warriors. It's kind of another one of these David and Goliath kind of stories in the Bible. And Isaiah's point is that when the, when the conquering king comes, it's going to be like that. It's going to be like the day of Midian, this, this overwhelming victory. But notice verse 5. Also, his liberation doesn't just bring about the defeat of enemies. It also brings about peace. That, that language of the boots of the warriors, the garments rolled in blood, that they will be burned when this conquering king comes because no longer will the implements of warfare be needed. The, the, those garments and those boots, those were the implements of, of warfare. They're going to be burned because they're not going to be needed anymore. That's how decisive the victory this conquering king brings is. But how will all this happen? Well, it's all possible because of, of verse 6. You see in verse 6, there's this language of for. You could translate it because. Because this promised child has come, this conquering king is born. And it's hard for me to read verses 6 and 7 without hearing Handel's Messiah, right? For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. And actually, the birth of this child was even mentioned back in Isaiah chapter 7, where he writes, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And she'll call his name Emmanuel. He will be a governmental leader who will, who will rule with fairness and equity so that all people, but especially the vulnerable, will flourish. And there will be no more political gridlock or special interests or, or partisan infighting. When this king comes, there will be justice and rule. The text describes him as a, as a wonderful counselor, which means that he always gives marvelous advice. He always knows the right things to do. How we long for someone like that, right? To have someone that we can go to who always knows what the best thing is to do, what the best decision is. That's what it means that he's a wonderful counselor. And he's also called Mighty God. And this is where Isaiah's readers would have begun wondering, who is the identity of this hero? that he's described as mighty God. This is the language that is used for God himself in the book of Isaiah. He's everlasting father, this, this picture of, of a benevolent protector who cares for and disciplines his children, ensuring their safety and their well-being. He's described as the prince of peace. The language of peace in the Old Testament, it, it speaks to wholeness and completeness, completeness of well-being. And therefore, as the Prince of Peace, 
He himself is a whole personality. He's at one with God and the people, and he brings this wholeness and this peace to his everlasting rule. And the text goes on and says there's going to be no end to his government. There's going to be no end to the increase of this peace. Everything will continue to increase until everything is brought under his wise and good rule. Now, Isaiah's listeners and readers would have been wondering, okay, now how can this be? How is this going to happen? And it's almost as if Isaiah anticipates this question, and and you look at verse 7, and you see, he says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God is going to be the one to bring us about. How is this going to happen? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so as we read these verses of this conquering king that's coming, what should be in our minds, and it's hard in these, in these verses to get it, but what should be in our minds is, is something like this moment from the return of the king. The return of the king. Watch, this, watch this clip. come the days of the king. May they be blessed. This is the the picture. This is what Israel longed for. This is what what we long for, this conquering king who will come, whose reign will increase, who will bring about justice, who every person will look at and, and cheer and say, yes, at last, the one that we have longed for has come, who will usher in an unprecedented era of peace and well-being, as well as justice. And this points us to the next passage, Isaiah chapter 11, where we discover that the hero that we expect not only is a conquering king, but also a just judge. And so if you turn over in your Bible a couple pages to Isaiah chapter 11, it's on page 557, you see this picture of a just judge. I mean, how often have you felt taken advantage of by those around you, or or, or you feel this sort of indiscriminate nature of disease and heartache and disaster? Or how often have you even looked beyond your own situation out into the world to see all of the oppression and the injustice that exists all around the globe? And really just cried out, how long, O oh Lord, how long is this going to be like this? I mean, is there, is there no one who can rescue us? Is, is there no one who will stand for justice, who, who will make this right? I mean, frankly, any hero who comes who, who wouldn't deal with the world justly, who wouldn't set these things to right, just wouldn't be the hero that we long for. Of course, we expect a just judge who will come. And if you look at Isaiah chapter 11, verse 3, you see that this is exactly who is coming. A descendant of the King David, it says, will come, and he will judge not by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, 
But with righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he will kill the wicked. I mean, the abused will be freed. The abusers will be destroyed. God is bringing justice. And, and this picture of that he doesn't judge with his eyes or with his ears, the, the only a, human judges are limited to what their eyes can see and what their ears can hear, right? But this judge knows everything completely perfectly. And so he can give absolutely just judgments with all the information. But it doesn't stop there. Look, look further down to verse 6. It says, The wolf and the lamb will lay down with the leopard. And the young goat will go down with the, with, the, with the lion, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And it says the little child will lead them. I mean, the cow and the bear are going to become friends. The lion's going to become a vegetarian and, and kids are going to play with the cobras. And the picture is that no longer will anyone be hurt. No longer will anyone destroy. But again, the question is, is how is this going to happen? You know, what's going to bring this about? If you look down at, at verse 9, you see again this language of for or because. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The Messiah will make it possible for us to know God. And he will make a way for the re- effects of the fall to begin to be reversed. To begin to work backwards. You see, this is the ultimate picture, isn't it? The injustice will so far be removed from planet Earth that even the wild animals will no longer prey on the weak. Even the wild animals will no longer prey on the weak. The wicked will be punished. The oppressed will be set free. This hero will come and do this. And the process begins with his death and his resurrection. And it will be fulfilled in his return. And this is the king that we want, right? We want a conquering king. We want a just judge. This is the hero that that we long for as people who will rule with perfection, who will punish the wicked. I I mean, at least the Hitlers and the Bin Ladens, right? And, And not to mention that kid who always picks on you at school. We want someone who will come and will make it right. And actually, when I think about this just judge who comes, it, it reminds me of this, this great scene in Harry Potter. Um, and, and like Narnia and like The Hobbit and these other mythical, mythical stories of good versus evil um, with, with good triumphing, um, they echo our story. I think that's why we love these kinds of stories of, of the Lord of the Rings others because they echo something true in our experience. And if you're familiar with Hogwarts, with the Harry Potter stories, you know that the wizard Dumbledore, he is the great hero of that story. And, and like Aslan, like Gandalf, he is goodness with skin on. He's wise, he's powerful, he's loving, he's good, he always protects Harry. But, but he isn't weak. He's conquering and he's just. And, and we wouldn't want him any other way, would we? We wouldn't want him any other way. And at the end of book four, the the Goblet of Fire, Dumbledore has just burst into a room and he's rescuing Harry from one of Voldemort's villains. Harry was about to be killed and Voldemort bursts in and saves him. Voldemort is the great villain. He's evil incarnate. And then listen to how J.K. Rowling describes what Harry felt in that moment. This is what she writes. She says, At that moment, Harry fully understood for the first time why people said Dumbledore was the only wizard Voldemort had ever feared. 
The look upon his face was more terrible than Harry could have ever imagined. There was no benign smile on Dumbledore's face, no twinkle in the eyes behind the spectacle. There was a cold fury in every line of the ancient face, and a sense of power radiated from Dumbledore as though he were giving off burning heat. He's good, he's loving, he's kind, but he's not to be trifled with. He's strong. That's the kind of hero that we long for. We're desperate for this, right? Someone who will make it right, who will establish a better kingdom, who will pursue the wicked and punish them. And I get so excited about that, but, but then I realize something. Wait, wait a second. That's actually not good news for me. It's not actually good news for any of us. Because I deserve, I deserve what, what Voldemort gets. I mean, heroes come to protect the innocent, but I'm not innocent. Heroes come to fight the enemy, and when I'm really honest, I, I look a lot like the enemy sometimes. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who suffered terribly in the Russian gulag, I think he summarizes this perfectly. He says, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessarily only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But then he laments, he says, but the line dividing good and evil cuts through every human heart, and who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? The line dividing good and evil cuts through every human being, and who is willing to destroy a part of himself? You see, listen, every one of us is doomed, and there's nothing we can do to escape a judgment like this unless, unless God can find a way to destroy all evil without destroying us, unless there's a way for him to be the conquering judge, the, the ruling king who can do this without annihilating us. And, and that's exactly why that the hero that we most need is the hero that we least expect C.S. Lewis writes that that whether we like it or not, God intends to give us what we need, not what we now think we want. God intends to give us what we need, not now what we think we want. So what is it that we need? Who is the hero that we don't expect? Well, he's a hated sufferer. Turn with me one more time to Isaiah chapter 53. It's on page 613. We see in this chapter a picture of a hated sufferer. Not as many popular examples of that kind of hero, are there? This is the last thing we'd expect, but it's the first thing that we need. And, and only if this is true could this hero ever possibly be good news for us. Only if he's a hated sufferer can he, this, just, this news of a just king, of a, of a just judge, be good news for us. But when you read Isaiah 53, it's no wonder that so many missed him when he came, Right? I mean, what Messiah, what hero fits this description? Look at, it. Look at Isaiah 53, verse 2. It says, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no, no beauty that we should desire him. I mean, he was ugly. I mean, average at best, right? I mean, the pictures that we have of blonde hair, blue-eyed Aryan Jesus with the spotless confl- complexion, I mean, this is not the Jesus of Isaiah 53. He was average, maybe even ugly. 
He was despised and rejected by men. He was absolutely hated. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. I mean, he experienced so much pain emotionally, physically. He was as one men hide their faces from. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. And Jesus was hated. And remember, even the few friends that he had, eventually they they betrayed him and denied him. And everyone else yelled, crucify him. Keep on reading verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Basically he's saying, we, he was carrying our sorrows, but we thought that God was angry at him because of something he had done. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So what's going on here? Pastor Tim Keller, he explains it this way. He said, God absorbs the pain, violence, and evil of the world into himself in order to honor moral justice and merciful love so that someday he can destroy all evil without destroying us. So that someday he can destroy all evil without destroying us. This is the true great hero. Not the one that we expect, but the one that we desperately need. The one who came to bear our sorrows, who was pierced for our unrighteousness, crossed for our injustice, who was punished in our place so that we could receive place, whose, whose wounds heal us. Like every one of us that says we're like sheep, we've gone our own way, we, we hurt others, we destroy ourselves, we reject God, but the Lord has placed on him the sin of us all. So what kind of hero suffers? Not, not the one that we expect, but the one that we desperately need. He suffers so that he can be the conquering king and the just judge and yet continue to show his love to us so that we can live in his new kingdom and experience the perfect peace that he brings. He is this for us. This is what he has done for us. He is the hero that we actually have. Do you see how beautiful this is? He's the hero that we have. He is all of this and more. If he, if he wasn't powerful, if he wasn't just, he wouldn't be the kind of hero we need, right? But if he didn't suffer, he'd be no good to us. We would be as good as dead. But in Jesus, we are given everything. If he is the hero we have, then how do we respond to him? This is the question. If, if this is the hero that we've been given, the hero that we, we don't expect, but the who we so desperately need, how do we respond to him? Two things. First, hope in this hero. I mean, there's, there's no end to the list of, of lesser heroes, those things that we put our hope in to tell us that life is worth living, that give us significance. Lesser heroes that promise security, satisfaction, significance. But at the end of the day, they always come up short, right? Whether, whether it's money or family, good works, morality, success, approval. I mean, these are all good things, right? But, but they can't rescue you. Your, your family can't die for you. Your career can't save you. 
Your money can't be pierced for your transgressions. So if you follow Jesus, where is your hope? If you don't follow Jesus, where is your hope? I mean, the king will rule. The judge will judge. And when we stand in his presence, the only way we can stand in his presence is if Jesus is our advocate, if he is our savior. And and actually, later on in the New Testament, we see an example of someone who read these verses and then was transformed by them. It's it's over in Acts chapter 8. You don't have to turn there. But this is after Jesus has come and Philip, a brand new follower of Jesus, he runs into this Ethiopian official. And this official was on his way from Jerusalem back to Ethiopia. And he happens to be reading from the Isaiah scroll. He's reading the very chapter, Isaiah 53, that we were just talking about. And, and the official bumps into Philip, and, and Philip says, uh, he asks Philip a question. The official says to Philip, about whom, I ask, does the prophet say this about? Him, himself or someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And immediately this Ethiopian official, he, he believes, he places his hope in Jesus, and he's baptized right there. This, this is the model of, of how we respond to the hero. We place our hope in him. And nothing can rescue except for him. No one else can be all that we need. Jesus is everything that we need. So first, hope in this hero. Second, anticipate his return. Anticipate the return of this hero. You see, Jesus' resurrection marked a massive and decisive turning point in God's plan to renew the world, to rescue it, to restore what he has made. But his work is not done, right? I mean, cancer still happens. Uh, Over a dozen people were shot in Kansas City last week. I mean, just yesterday afternoon, someone was murdered in Waldo, just just 10 blocks from here. The rescue has begun, but but it's, it's not complete yet, Right? So what do, what do we do now? Our role now in the midst between the beginning of the rescue and, and the completion of the rescue is to anticipate in, in our work, in our family, in our parenting, in our conversation, in our schoolwork, in our conversations, in our play, in our homes, in our leisure, in every facet of our lives to anticipate life as it can be, life as it will be someday when Jesus returns. How do we do this? We begin conforming our life to the pattern of the rescuer, the pattern of humiliation that leads to exaltation, the pattern of self-sacrifice that that feels like death, but, but that somehow leads to life. And there will be times when this feels overwhelming. There will be times when living into that kind of pattern, living into that kind of way of life will feel absolutely unbearable. But don't lose hope. Because the king is returning. In the situation we find ourselves in between the beginning of the rescue and, and sort of the end of the rescue, it reminds me of the story of Sasha Weinsheimer. And Sasha was an eight-year-old girl who was living with her family in Manila when World War II broke out. And when the Japanese invaded the Philippines, um, the American forces stationed there were overwhelmed and eventually driven off the island. And Sasha and her family and thousands of other Americans living in Manila were forced into a prison camp in the middle of the city, and they were cut off from the outside world. 
and they faced deplorable conditions in the camp, and as food began to ran, uh, run out, the hunger became unbearable. Sasha writes as this eight, nine-year-old girl in her journals, of actually they laid in their cots at night, and they, would, they were so thin that they could press down on their stomachs and feel their backbones uh, through their stomachs. So Sasha's own mother went from 148 pounds down to 73 pounds. But what gave them hope what sustained them during this incredible misery was, was a promise from General MacArthur and the other American forces that they would return one day and liberate. As they retreated, they said, we will return. We will come back. And finally, after three long years of waiting, on February 3rd, 1945, Sasha and her family, they were liberated by the, hundred, or the, the first cavalry division. Some of you this morning, you may feel like you're in a prison camp. Life may be overwhelming. But don't lose hope. The king is returning. Keep anticipating the day when he comes. Keep waiting patiently for the restoration that is coming. And the king, the suffering servant on whose shoulders it is coming. So this morning, as we come to the table, as we come to the Lord's table and receive the elements, as we stand to that line, we are proclaiming that I need rescuing, that, that I embrace Jesus alone as my only hope of rescue. As you come to the Lord's table, you are saying that, that he is the hero that I need. He, not that he's the hero I expected. In fact, he's probably utterly different than the hero I expected, but that Jesus alone is the hero that I need. You're saying that I trust that he has come and that he will come again to finish the work that he has begun. You see, communion is both an act of remembrance, but it's also an act of anticipation. We celebrate communion in anticipation of him and also in remembrance of him, in anticipation of what he's going to do, of the day that we will eat this meal together with him in the new heavens and the new earth, and in remembrance of what he's already done to begin the rescue. And so you don't have to be a member of Christ's community to celebrate communion with us. The, the only requirement to come to this table is to say, I am desperate, and this hero is the one, the only one, who can rescue me. Of course, if you'd rather, you're always welcome to remain seated and use this as a time for prayer. Um, but when you do come, gather in groups of four or five and, and take the bread, dip it in the, in the juice, and then partake together. Um, we have four communion stations around the room. There's, there's two here up front, and then there's two in the back. And this one in this back corner here has gluten-free communion elements available. And as you go to receive communion, you kind of enter, uh, go out through these side aisles and then return through the center aisle. Um, and we know that the pews are a little tight here if you're a guest with us and you have to kind of climb over someone as you're getting in and out. We're used to that. We understand it. Jesus our Messiah, our hero. His body was broken for us. He was bruised for our transgressions. His wounds brought us healing. It says in Isaiah 53, 11, that he was poured out for us to death. The cup is the new covenant in his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. So come now to the Lord's table and proclaim that he is the only one who can rescue. Come when you're ready.